Hi, I'm Fabio Male, host of the Functional Tennis Podcast, and I'm taking the summer break with my family. And until I'm back, we will showcase a few great episodes from our archive. This week's episode is with Irish coach Joe Dwyer, who was mainly based in the US and worked with numerous professionals. Joe offered great advice as well as probably the best storyteller we've had on the podcast so far in over 110 episodes. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger. A huge thanks to them for supporting this podcast. Head over to slingerbag.com to get all the info on the awesome Slinger bag. Hope you enjoy this episode. My name's Joseph O'Dwyer. Um, I'm delighted to be on the Functional Tennis Show today with Fabio. Really looking forward to doing this interview with him. Heard a lot about him and his work that he's been doing over the last year with his podcasts. Uh, he interviewed one of my favorite players I ever coached on the tour, Jeff Salzenstein, which was a great podcast. And um, his nickname is a seagull who, seagull who I work with. But anyway, great to be here today uh, on the Functional Tennis Show. Joe, great to have you. Jeff was who gave me the inspiration to get you on here. Obviously, I've known, I've seen you back in Ireland here a few times over the summers when you've been back and you've worked with James McGee and Conan Ireland and so many more players, which we'll talk about. But yeah, he was telling me a story about how you helped him break the top 100 and how you were with him when he had a good run to US Open. And yeah, you mentioned you sleeping in a train station. Is that, that a true story? That is a, uh, a true story. Yeah, it was, uh, it was when uh, something got really confused. I was going through a, a divorce at the time and I was in an argument. So the person I was meant to be staying with, I didn't get the telephone number. I had no way of getting out there. And, and Jeff had already gone for the day and I had no way of getting into a hotel or anything like that. Jeff usually took care of all the details on the financial side of things. I don't carry any money on me for those, uh, for obvious reasons. But yeah, I ended up sleeping in the uh, train station, went to the match the next day against Fernando Verdasco. We had the game plan. Jeff beat him 6-3, 6-1 in about, in about an hour. Played the best tennis of his life. I did the scouting report before on Fernando. He tanked his match because he was so confident in Washington the week before. He came up, he wanted to play in the US Open. He was 19, he was in the quarterfinals of that tournament. And after the match, he was in shock. And then Jeff left to go to the locker room. And all I heard, oh, I heard the smashing sound. I go, what's going on? It was like court 13. And I go around the back of the court and I take a look. And there's Fernando breaking every single racket that he had in his bag on the ground in frustration. And then as... Of course, Jeff will tell you, uh, of course, he gets into the he gets into the main draw. He gets in as a lucky loser and he wins around. And we lost to Arazi, I believe, in four sets. I think they gifted Moroccan. But that's a true story. There it is. That's one of his, one of his good winnings. Yeah. Anybody I've spoken to have told me Joe has so many good stories. <laughs> but then I've read all the resumes that you sent me through the players you've worked with and what great job you've done with this. So... On our Instagram account uh, a few days ago, we put out, we were going to be speaking to you and we were going to ask, well, I asked the fans, would you like to hear Joe's great stories or would you like to hear what Joe thinks you need to break into the top 100 and what tools you need? And I don't know, 10, 12,000 people saw this and the vote came back exactly 50-50, which left me in a dilemma. Like, what do we do here? I have to make a decision. <laughs> yeah. So I just think we're just yeah. going to talk about both, to be honest yeah. with you. We'll just see what comes up, yeah. have a bit of fun, yeah. and hopefully the Always. listeners yeah. Yeah. will enjoy it. I've read a bit of the resumes that you sent me, and a lot of people says you can scout players in an hour. You can, even less than an hour, you know what to look for. You watch a bit of video, you know exactly how to develop a game plan. What's the secret in that? Just 
it's experience, it's playing experience, it's being a total tennis addict to, to, to professional tennis, watching loads of matches from start to finish, and then the patterns will be will will unfurl in that match. So the players and the coaches will never talk about it on the interviews. It's like the unwritten code on the tour, on the ATP tour and on the WTA tour. We know exactly when we're playing Kevin Anderson, we know that the weaker side is Kevin Anderson's forehand. We will go after that forehand. But when we're playing them, we'll go like, oh, Kevin Anderson, great serve, big forehand, great backhand, great player. It's going to be one tough matchup. But the reality is we're going taking our attack through his forehand wing throughout that match. And then the big thing about that, it relaxes the player because they've got a total game plan. They know exactly what they're trying to enforce upon their, their will upon their, their opponents will like. So they have their game plan. We have our game plan. We both have strategies. And whoever executes it better on the day will win. But everybody has a hole. Everybody has a weakness. There's a weaker side somewhere. There's some shot that's going to break down before the other side, either on the forehand or the backhand. Tell me what level, Joe, do you have to be before you can actually really implement the game plan? Let's say no matter who you're playing, you've got to have tools that you can break down opponents. And is there a certain level you reach before you have these tools? Because I personally struggle. You may say, Fab, you're going to play whoever it is. He's sliced to his backhand. He will struggle. But if I can't slice, that game plan's useless to me. That's the whole beauty of the road to the top 100. That's where the journey gets broken down. So you might watch. I worked with Robbie Gennepri for in, in, in Atlanta, and we do some training. Now, Robbie lost in the semifinals of the U.S. Open in five sets. He, from, and he played five sets in every round to reach the semis. Won all five set matches. Now, we would practice and he would use a slice backhand. He would not miss one slice backhand in an hour in the game that we, when we were training. Yet he might only use that shot five times in the match. You might have to hit a drop volley. A drop volley has to be hit maybe five or six times in the match. It could be missed with the players who are like top, you know, the top 200, they'll miss that ball. That ball again is never missed. And every shot is equally, as equally important. So you have to be able to do everything with the, with the racket. You gotta have a block slice forehand. You have to have a block slice backhand. You gotta have a long finish in the slice backhand. You gotta have a short finish. You gotta have a buggy whip on the forehand. You gotta be able to turn the hand, sometimes goes higher, sometimes goes lower. But whatever stroke the professional players are using, they're going to make that shot. If they put a racket on the ball, it's usually going over the net. True. Yeah. Well, that's what makes them the best. That's the what world. makes them the best. So, yeah, let's talk about the part of where we put out to the guests that what makes you a top player. Like, why do some players make it and why do not? Even though they all train all the time, they all have a coach. What really differentiates a guy who can successfully break the top 100 quickly? Coaching. It's in the coach. It absolutely comes down to the coach and the player. Um, and it's individualized. So at 12 or 13, you should be looking to hire a full-time coach. And he only works with that player or two other players. That's the key. You're with that player for every practice, for every match that that player plays from time he's 13. You're watching every point he plays. So, for example, you go, he can't hit a slice backhand. Well, he has to learn that shot at 13. Because by 15, it's already too late. So you need to be at around 13 years of age at the end of, at the end of your 13th year as a boy. You need to have basically every shot in the book that you're going to use when you're on the tour. 
So when you physically get up there, it could be 15 or 16. When you go out on the tour, you have everything. And so like, and I mean every single shot in the book. And so, and you have the ability to keep the ball deep. You never miss the ball cross court. There's a certain rules out there. You never miss hardly any second serve returns or rarely miss on the men's tour. Even though the average rally is, it, they'll say it's seven shots, but if you start charting the matches and you take out the first serves, way longer. It's way more physical. They hide the, the good stats, do they? They hide they? the good stats. So, Basically, that's what happens. Yeah, they hide the good stats. What are the rules, the unwritten rules of pro tennis for you to be a pro tennis player? Very, you make a decision on every return, you're usually going to return the ball middle. You're aiming middle with your returns on the return. So if you miss it, you go middle cross. It goes to the safe part of the court where there's no angles. So people don't realize that. So if you're at the future level, when you're out there, there's a lot of kids out there who don't have the coaching. They're missing cross court forehands. Yet when you watch a, a final at Wimbledon, you can barely ever remember the forehand being this wide on a cross court. Very, very seldom you see it. The slice backhand is never missed. It's always in through, through the margin. You're not creating angles. And in professional tennis, then it's whoever takes the ball line first, takes control to the point, or gets to use their weapon first, like their forehand, like Jim Courier would run around and take complete control of the point with the forehand. And once he did that, he would win matches. Serving is huge. However, one of the serves, like Robbie Ginepri did not have a great serve. Courier didn't. And what they did have on that, they had an unbelievable out wide serve, an amazing ability to hit the serve halfway up the service box on the deuce side of the court. If they hit that target, they never lost that point. So that out wide serve is huge for anybody who doesn't have a big serve. That serve becomes, that's, that's your number one area to go to work with would be to hit that serve. But it has to be properly it out wide. It has to be out wide, yeah. Because if it goes into the margin, it's in the honey hole. Yeah. We call it in the honey hole. So when Fed had that match point against Novak in the US Open, and he hit the serve, went through the margin on the due side of 40-15, and Novak just took a swing. I mean, he just he said, I'm, it's done, and he swung it, and he hit that forehand for the outright winner, and suddenly the match changed. It was like, it was a match changer. So, but if Fed had hit his first serve halfway up, game set and match Fed. Simple. Yeah. yeah. The inches make a difference. And then you defend middle on tour. So you defend middle, that's the other rule. What do you mean by defending middle? So when you're stretched out wide or you're way behind on the baseline, you're always gonna go back middle. Unless you've already got a scouting port and you know you're gonna hit the ball to the part of the court, let's say with, with a Marty Fish whose forehand was his weaker side, you'll make him hit a forehand to win that point at all costs. You're gonna make him hit a forehand. You're gonna make Roger hit a backhand to win the point if you can. Even now? With his uh, new backhand? No, not even now. Uh, light, I mean, Fed can still, he's, so, he's a gifted shot maker. He's every shot in the book. They all do. Mm. That's the difference. Like, Curios has, 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 has a great chip forehand. He's got a great slice forehand. He's got a great slice drop shot on both sides, which makes him fun to watch. And then he uses the underarm serve. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the guy is, I remember first meeting Nick in Tiburon. So here's the story for you. And it's another player, Ilya Bazoliak, this gifted Serbian player. You won't know his name, but he's gifted enough to play with Ninad Zimovic in a live Davis Cup tie against the United States. And they beat Mike and Bob Bryant 14-12 in the, in the fifth set. 
the guy is a rock star player. Two of them are up the Tiburon and then that's a challenger. Nick is probably 18 or 19 and they both walk in the boat. Very striking, six foot five guys, but really, you know, and I go and I go, hey, and I go, what's going on? Ilya goes, what are you doing today? He said, I want you to meet Nick. He's going to be a super, the next superstar from Australia. I said, hey, Nick, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. And we start chatting. I said, well, how are you guys doing this week? What's up Ilya this week? And Ilya goes, I'm not feeling it, Joe. I'm checking out. I said, what do you mean? Yeah, my wrist. And he winks at my wrist. I'm just not feeling it. And I go to Nick, well, how are you doing this week? He said, I'm not feeling it either, mate. I'm, just, I'm ready to go home. I've got a groin strain. I go, really? And they said, yeah. And they wink at me and I go, I think no more about it. So I go out and I do the practice with Donald Young, with, uh, with James McGee. And I, we come back in, it's three hours later and I'm hanging around. And the two boys come walking in and they're soaking wet. And I go like, oh, what, what are you guys, did you go for a swim? And they go, no, no, we went and played basketball for five hours. Not injured at all. They just had no interest in playing that week. And as everybody knows, Nick loves basketball. So he was scheduled to play against, uh, to play with Richard Krychek's tournament in Europe. And he calls up Richard, former Wimbledon winner, and he calls him up, Richard, I, I'm not coming to play your tournament. He goes, what do you mean? And you're like, I said, no, LeBron James has asked me to train in camp this week in treatment. <laughs> I'm going to go train with the world basketball champions, Nick. So lots of stories like that out there, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Eh? The guy's just so yeah. relaxed. He's so relaxed. You can tell from me, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, you'll hear it. And I, I look at those two guys and they're probably, the, I've seen some of the most relaxed stuff ever, ever with these guys. Yeah. yeah well, now that we have you on a few stories, what's one of your funnier stories from your days on the tour? Any fun Irish stories? We do have a good few Irish listeners here. Any interest in McGee? Yeah, in we've got some good stories on uh, one of my fondest memories was working with Conan Ireland early on. And we were going over, we were in, and he just reached the semis of a challenger. And I started working with him in Dublin when it was held. And then we went to play a clay court and we pretty much had played Nearly the majority of his career was pretty much played on, on hard courts, a few clay courts here and there. So I go to my first clay court with him. We're warming up at Carlos Burlock and great player from Argentina, really, really gifted. And, and Connors are slipping and sliding. I'm just going like, that's the first day, you know, you're going to get used to it. You've got to put the ball your foot down. You're going to be able to slide in. Day two, we go again and practice with Burlock. Same thing. And then we're getting ready to play the match the next day. And we're both sitting down in, in the locker room before we go out. And Nyland's feet are looking up. And I look at the soles and I go, I'm like, Connor, those are hardcore soles, dude. Not only clay courts. I said, I didn't know. I said, what do you mean you didn't know? I said, I, I said, so we went ahead and bought him a pair of clay court shoes before the match began. One of those things you'd never think. You just, I took it for natural that, you know, everybody thinks you, you know, you do yeah. clay court. You don't play in clay that much or no one's told you. You don't know these things. Uh, what was Connor ranked at the time? Probably, I don't remember, three or four hundred, mm. I'd say two or three hundred. He climbed fast after I worked. Connor's work was done on the road. He did all the speciality work on the road. People never, never really saw, they saw him play in Ireland when he won his future and then when he reached the semifinals of the Challenger. But that, it wouldn't, there wasn't that much going on then. It wasn't like now you can turn on, you can see the Challengers live on the ATP Tour. But at that moment in time, it wasn't available to, to many, many people. He learned everything on the road. And he learned about eight, 10, 12 digit shots, different shots that he didn't have before. And also the right footwear patterns and how to move on the court. That's a huge part of it, the footwork and how, doing the right footwork. How far can a player excel without these shots and footwork? They're not going to be top 100. Like what Jeff says, it's, it's the details. 
you're not making it. If you can't hit a slice backhand, you know, without missing it for eight or 10 minutes, you're not making it. Because when time comes and hits that shot, you're going to miss it. So, and it takes time to learn it and you have to buy in to use it. And a lot of the players in the futures level will not buy into the tricky shots. Joe, the tricky shots are the simple, should be the simple shots. Should be the simple shots. But for example, Robbie's gifted Ginepri. Not only he can do anything with the ball. So for example, if you slice the ball out wide to Robbie on the backhand side and it breaks the the angle on the court, it goes out and he can hit an absolutely stunning short angle cross court that will open the court up in fact when he hits that shot the point's over I watch it numerous times I watch him beat James McGee in the semi-finals of the challenger on his during his last year on tour I watched him do that and then you could take it line so you have to be real careful where you put the ball with these players at the Aussie Open last year I spent a good week there watching a lot of tennis and one match between the Murray and the Batista, Murray's technical last match he ever played. I know he's been back, but one thing I noticed, they were going down the centre, down the centre. But once somebody pulled the trigger and went wide, the game point was on. It was on. And just because you went there wide, Murray was so good with the wide ball that actually gave him an advantage once yeah. the ball went wide. Yeah. And then I see all the top guys. Once you go wide on them, you're opening yourself up for trouble. Yeah. yeah. Andy Murray probably has the best out wide defensive forehand in the game. So when he's 10 or 12 feet behind it, he hits that buggy with a lot of spin. It gets right down, either goes right up in the center of the court or it goes into the middle the middle section on the cross court and he's back into the point. Yeah, it's impressive. It's an amazing impressive. shine. He's not, most, that, that's the difference. So that running forehand when you're deep defending at the futures level, they'll drop that short. And that's when the players will come in and then it's gone. Once you hit a ball short with topspin, that doesn't have the velocity to carry it really past the baseline. They're going to come in and they're going to hit a winner. You're, you're out of the point. Yeah, That's the true. huge difference is that ability to defend. We did on last week's podcast episode, we had a hitting partner, Mike Digby. He's hit with Federer, City Pass, all. He's hit with him. He's only a young lad, but yeah. that's his, his job now. He says he wants to be a hitting partner. And anyway, I asked him, what 10 things did you learn from these guys? And number one and most important was consistent Depth, 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 depth. They just, they have it ingrained. They go, do they train it? No, they don't train it because they've been doing it so long. That's all they know. It's crazy. And the other thing then with that, if you don't have that, that's taught very, very early. The drills are taught very early to hit the ball through the the margin and you do depth-based drills from the time you're 12 or 13 and you have to hit like a certain amount of balls You have to have the velocity to get back. So I remember working with them, watching, I had to, luckily when I was traveling with Jeff, I used to, Spent quite a bit of time with Herman Gumi, an Argentinian coach, gifted player, top 50 in the day. And he was traveling with Guillermo Canas. Canas, we all know, is top 10 in the world, great player. And he would do a drill where he'd go right back to the back of the, the fence, one racket length out. And he would just hit the ball deep, right on the baseline without much pace. And Canas would have to rip the ball with enough velocity and you'd get to ball, the ball would have to reach Canyas's racket on one bounce or they'd start to drill again. Sounds easy? No. So you have to need you some have, strength. You have and to be strength and you have to be really loose and you have to be able to really rip that ball. And he's not missing wide and, he's not, and it's not going, and it's enough velocity to reach us so that when he's playing, then his ball is always going to be crossing the baseline on the crosswalk. That's one of the drills they'll do. Is Nadal the best in the world at that? Nadal's right the best in the world at that. You can, nobody, you can't beat Nadal. If you're a high and heavy topspin player, no one can beat Rafa. 
You have to be able to drive the ball through Rafa. Let's say the lower, we're not all playing Rafa every week, but at the lower level, you're playing somebody who has that heavy ball that you feel like you're getting pushed back. You don't have the strength to get on top of it. What can you do in that situation? You do speciality feeds. That's where the coach comes in. So you're fed ball to that part of the court over and over with the same velocity that you'll see inside the top 10, top 20. So you, what people don't realize is, for example, Bjorkman was working some with Murray at one of the US Opens. Murray was getting ready to play Feliciano Lopez. So Bjorkman went, goes out in the court in their practice before he plays Feliciano. And he takes the racket and he starts mimicking. He hits the inside of the ball like the way the Feliciano hits the slice. And he is sticking the slices like 60 feeds in a row just close to the baseline, right on the baseline. I mean, right on the line from the service line. So he's, Murray's getting reps and then he feeds him short. Cause that's what, that's what he's, that's how the first point when you get it off Feliciano, if he's going to cough it up, it will come from that slice backhand. So Murray's already put the reps in before he plays that match. That's how important the details are for coaching. So, and they don't miss a trick, the, the top coaches. And there's no secrets. You're not hiding anything from these guys. And um, the people who've worked with Grand Slam players, they see everything. And then if, the, if you have a problem like that, or you're going to play a particular player, then you will be fed that ball you're having the problem with. For example, I mean, Roger's chip backhand cross court is a nightmare for a lot of people. It was for Rafa early on. So what do they do? The team goes in, they stand in the service line and they hit nothing but short slices to Rafa's forehand. When Rafa sees that ball now, game over. It's game over. I mean, he hit the points over. He's ripping the line or he's taking control of the point off Federer. You know, that's a really difficult ball for the, for the, uh, for and the then right they handers. never train it. Yeah, and they never train it. Because they don't have a coach. <laughs> they don't have a coach. And so they're all they're doing out in the futures without the coaches is they're just playing sets. Whereas Andy Murray spends two, an hour and a half to two hours a day doing speciality feeds. The stuff that Jeff talks about, the 10 or 15 shots that you will use maybe three or four times in the match, but it's at the most crucial time. So, I mean, if you look at the final of when, when, when Novak lost to Andy Murray, the difference in that match was Murray's defensive block slice backhand, again, is probably the best in the world. He neutralizes with that. Novak in that final was stretched going out, and he was stretched. He was half volleying the ball back. Came in and sat up in the board. Andy Murray roped him with a load of spin, had him off to the races. Novak was cramping by the end of that match. You better believe I went in the next time. And now if you look at, if you look at Novak now, he doesn't miss very many slices and he uses a lot more. Same with, uh, with Rafa. People think, you know, I watch Rafa do, you know, 15 minutes worth of work and he sliced backhand every day. They're just, they're perfectionists They're well. perfectionists, yeah. But you don't know that unless you're told that. So if you're out there 14, 13 years of age and you don't have a coach that's experienced or who's actually really coached 20 years on the tour, you're buying into a coach that you won't get the job done. You're screwed, basically. And sometimes the best players in the world aren't the best coaches. They can't explain the process. That's the other thing you have to look out for. They're great at doing the scouting reports, but they can't give you the, the technical adjustments of, where, of how it feels to hit this shot. It's basically what you're teaching the players and what it looks like. And then it's backed up on YouTube. But like the biggest myth that you'll have out there with the coaching is, and they, a lot of coaches will say they've worked with players. Their parents won't do a background check. And that's the kiss of death. In other words, they won't talk to the former players. And then you call up, oh, yeah, he, I was with him one time in a pro-am. But yeah. on the resume, it says that they've, they've worked with him. 
I I've, that it's you've run across it I've all run the across time. that even through the Instagram account where <laughs> yeah. where some coaches say they've worked with X, Y, and Z, and it's just they happen to bump into them. No, somewhere while on vacation, yeah. and I know some coaches have been caught. Some pro players have called out coaches for doing yeah. this, and yeah. there was a certain situation last year. But yeah, some coaches have coached so many players. But I think if you can find out who coaches have coached. And look at the results and seeing, okay, speak to some people, oh, they were never going to make it and they did. There's always like insight there where the coach can extract the absolute most out of the player. Like they can make them better than what they are. How many times do you hear a player who, oh yeah, he did his best he could, top 400. Is that a cop out? It's a, that's all they could reach? No, or is it because they didn't have the not, right if they team? Have the, if they have the speed and the wheels to do it. Um, it's just they just haven't had the right coaching. So if you've got the speed to play on the on the tour, you just haven't had the right coaching. You haven't taken care of the small details that make you that make you top one hundred. Like if I gave you a canvas, Joe, or gave other yeah. top coaches a canvas, you know what they're doing, and the player, let's say they're young, but they're not they're not gifted as an athlete, but they do all the right work. They yeah. tick all the boxes. How far can they go? They can probably make a career in doubles, but singles, if you don't have the speed, you can have all the right shots, but you're not making it in singles. You're just not going to make it. So prerequisite, is, if you need you speed. Have, you, need, you have to have wheels. Mm. And then with wheels, you can, be, you can be a retriever, but if you don't have any big weapons or you play behind the baseline, you can re really get to about 150, 160 in the world. But you've got to have a weapon after that. You must have a weapon. To break that top 100, you must have a weapon. Whether it's a serve, a forehand, a backhand, you have to have a weapons. You must have a weapon. You have to give the opponent something yeah. to be scared of. Yes, exactly. Right, right there. Yeah, they got to live in fear. Like when you see Rafa getting ready to use the buggy whip, it's, it, it's like, uh-oh, where am I going? Is it going to go line or I'm going to be run off the court with it? When you've caught that ball up to him. You see the it's trigger. An attackable ball. You see the trigger being pulled. And it's, yeah, it's, you see it in your mind and you go, oh, no. You look at Roger running around to hit a forehand. You go, oh no, you know, all hell's breaking loose on the court now. Yeah. Does a weapon becomes naturally, doesn't it? Yeah. You sort of grow up and yeah. you, you find your weapon, it becomes yeah. who you are. Yeah. I mean, Murray's backhand, double-handed backhand, it's the best, one of the best in the games. Moranka's single-handed backhand, way better than his forehand. Yeah, and then they'll play. So if you go to Warenka's backhand, you better be ready. Or Marty Fisher's backhand was way better than his forehand. And they could just hurt you with that shot. They really hurt you. Because you don't know whether they're going to take it line or whether they're going to rip it cross, really. It, it, they can change it. Do these guys, obviously, Wawrinka knows his, his backhand is his weapon. His yeah. forehand's pretty good as well. Oh, it's huge. And it's, but do they spend even more time working on the backhand or do they try and cover up the deficiency they in the will forehand? work on the deficiencies, obviously. They're going to do buckets and buckets of, of returns on the forehand and returns on the backhand. So the coach will serve at and they'll stand up real close to the, or just behind the service line. And we just do reps and reps of serves with the same velocity they'll see in a match. So in, in 25 minutes, you've done more returning than you're going to do in, in, in a five-step match in, in 20 minutes. And that's the other thing. It's, it's people, and then you go to the double side of the game which is kind of fascinating to me because if all the singles players played doubles, half the guys in top 100 and doubles wouldn't be there. If everybody was a requirement for the singles players to play singles and doubles, you'd decimate 50% of the field, in my opinion. The guys are that good. I mean, if Roger and Rafa played doubles, I think, yeah, 
one thing if they play doubles too, if they actually train specifically, specifically for, doubles. for doubles. So that's the other thing. Now doubles, you have to, it's specific training. It's half volleys, it's first volleys, it's serving to locations, it's crossing patterns and it's teamwork and it's synergy on the court. And at the end of the day, these guys, I mean, I've been lucky to practice with some of them, like Ellis Ferreira, probably he's won Grand Slam, probably he's number one in the world in doubles. I would practice with him for an hour and a half. He would not miss one half volley or one first volley or overhead in the hour and a half. That's how good his hands were. That's how good he was. Not one. But it's trained. It's trained. Pat Cash, I watched him train. This is a great story on, the, on Pat Cash, the year he won Wimbledon. Believe it or not, Pat Cash was training in Dublin, Whoa. in Carrick Mines Lawn Tennis Club in the weeks preceding him going over to Wimbledon the year he won it. So I watched him train every day. I just sat at the back of the court and watched him train. He would be playing five to six sets of tennis, like with guys who are top 20 in the world, like peaking for Wimbledon, six sets. I would watch him play sets where he wouldn't miss one half volley of volley during the course of some sets. If you put his racket on him, it was on, and that's what really opened my eyes up. What's well, a different level? And then he goes and he wins Wimbledon. And one of the stories is from Fred Stolle's great commentator. I was sitting with Fred one time and he said, yeah, did you ever notice the, uh, after the match, when he beat Landel in the final, I said, well, I said, I mean, he played, he's an unbelievable. He said, no, you look at his knees. And Pat Cash's knees were bleeding. He'd gotten down so low to the ball and had so many times in that match that he, his, his knees were actually touching the ground to get down to hit those volleys. Knees were bleeding. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. It's so hard when you do hear these stories of how these guys don't miss. They can, I've seen them hit cone, like hit practice cones and you know like in a minute they can hit a four, five, six, seven times. You're like it takes me 10 minutes before I hit one. Like they're just so good. Like Pete Sampson mentioned this a few weeks ago. He's known to, he could hit a 50 cent, a 50p coin anytime he wanted on the court. It's hard to believe that. I know these guys are the best in the world. That's what it, you need yeah. to be able to do these things. But even understand how these guys do it is pretty hard. They understand the geometry of the court. They know exactly what they can do with the ball and where to go. And, and they know how to manage the ball when it gets there. So if the ball comes short cross court to their backhand side, they're going to slice it and come into the net either up the middle or through mm -hmm. the margins. Well, I thought about it earlier when you were talking about these guys don't miss, don't no, miss. No. They play middle. But what they do 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 is once they see that early ball, they are on it quicker than a gazelle like. Nicky Pillich is a great coach and I learned this off him and here's the mentality of these players. When the ball is hit short, psychologically you go, that's my point. You're looking for that one weak moment when the ball is short and once it's short, whatever your game style is, if you're from, if you're from East Santoro, you're coming into the net off that short ball. If you're Jim Courier or Agassi, you're hitting a forehand. If you're Rafter, you're going to slice it and come in. But there's another person who, who, who never missed a volley. Uh, it was so good. So good. I mean, you watch them, you just don't realize until you actually practice with them. 
Uh, are you watching them for hours of what they do? But I mean, going back to Pat Cash, Cash would do those six sets and then he'd do sprints for half an hour and he'd be thrown up during the sprints up in Carrick Mines. I'm going like, and then you hear the stories about Jim Currier like hitting a thousand forehands in an hour, like sets of 30, but like running, hitting forehands, running around, hitting four, inside out forehands, back and forth. 30, 30 balls, 20 second break, thousand balls in an hour in the trolleys. So those are the stories that are, that are fascinating. Again, it comes down to you have to be lucky enough to find the coach that has the ability to, to do it all. You've got to be able to feed the ball to specific locations with the speed and with the depth and with the pace that they're going to see in the Pro Tour. You can't just be out there. And it's a lot of different feeds. It's very complicated. Where do people, where do coaches listening, where do they learn these skills? Is there like a resource online or... They can't just, you know. No, there's actually not that much online. They, they pretty much, these coaches go away. Like, you know, Lundgren's gone. He's in Texas. He doesn't really coach anymore. He's kind of, he's, he's retired. Peter's retired. Federer's coach that helped him win the Wimbledon title. He's gone. And they just take their knowledge. They don't bother with it. They're done with it. And they like to go and just roll out the basketballs and, and, and do ladies' clinics in the morning. It's, it's a no-brainer to do that. Money's good. And the money is really, really good. Yeah. And it's really good. So what people don't realize that the cost of having a coach in a tour to get inside the top 100 will usually run you around 1,500 to two grand a week plus expenses. So if you don't have that money, yeah. you might as well not go on the tour. You can try it, but doubles you can do, you pick somebody like Joe, so doubles is different. Like so Johan Bunstrom, Julian Rogier, they were outside the top 100 when I met them. I was traveling with Connor and Ireland. They would do an hour and a half of drills every single day, every day, an hour and a half to two hours of just doubles drills. Then they'd go play two sets in the afternoon with, with a super tiebreaker. They did it for a year. Top 50, Rogier went to number one in the world. Details. Details. And Details. And, and using you know, half volley after half volley. For every situation. So every ball you can possibly imagine, you, you get in doubles, they practice. The balls dipped at your feet, lashed at them. They just became really good at what just they're bad at. Just became really good at what they could do. And tell me, you are working with an Irish guy, Julian Bradley, at the moment. Yeah. Who is such a hard worker. I know Julian going back years. He actually lived with a good friend of mine for a while. And yeah, he's one of the hardest workers, nicest guys out there. But he's making a transition to the doubles game. Yeah. The doubles, but he's winning his doubles yeah. titles using his single skills. Yes, that's what I want to talk to you about. Yeah. So you're going to give him doubles to us. I'm starting. He's only been two years on the tour. Yeah. So let's, and for two years that he's been on the tour, he hasn't had a full-time coach with him. Yeah. So he desperately needs the funding to do it. We're trying to get that. And, and I've helped out. I've given, I've donated a lot of my time from him. Year one, here's how you know how good he is. Just before you go in, yeah. Joe. Julian took up tennis quite late. He was yeah. 13 or 14. 16. When he, 16, sorry. Yeah. When he started playing tennis. Yeah. So he's late to the game. Yeah. He is very intelligent. He studied dentistry. Now, he didn't finish his dentistry course to go pro. But no, he went, he went to finish. He had to finish oh, his degree in America. He, he didn't finish dentistry. He took up a different degree in the yeah. States. So yeah. he could come back to that yeah. in the future. In the future, yeah. So he's really intelligent. But I think he was advised not to go pro by a lot of people. But that's what he wants to do, full respect. And he's given singles a go. He's been traveling a lot in the States, playing week on week, working hard, working with anybody. I think he told me last year he spent, like he slept in 170 different places and with different people. He's just 
crazy guy, but nice. But now he's working with you. You're going to give him yeah. the tools. He's going into his third year in the tour. Yeah. So what tools like are you going to give him? Well, he's already developed at the end of this year. So his second, his first year, he played in three doubles finals, and that's your which was and one one. This year he played. The end of the year he played in twelve doubles finals, winning seven. So when you see that kind of progress, and that's when I said, okay, I'm going to spend a lot more time now working on his weapons. His serve will be, it's going to be a huge factor for him. We've been really working hard on that. He's now got a really, really good serve. The forehand has become a weapon. Um, he's continuing to develop. Now he's developing, finally, the slice backhand. He's getting a real feel for the variations on that. And I'm working really, really hard on giving him his first volleys, the ones that will be low the net doing multiple hours on first volleys and half volleys, knowing exactly what his options are in those low volleys, where he can go, which I think he'll have a super year this year. I'm really excited about this year. I'll, I'll meet up in February and March. I'll go back out on the road with him. But whenever he's not on the road, he's with me. So same with Jeff. Jeff had a great comedy set. I don't care where you move to. If you move to Timbuktu and I'm not playing on the tour, I'm going to come work with you. So that's what he did. That's what Nyland did. That's what McGee did. So people don't realize that just because they're not playing tournaments that week or two or three weeks, they're actually with their coach for nine days doing two to four hours a day. Working, working on the skills that they, that they were misfiring. Say they were misfiring the, the, the backhand slice approach. They missed too many of them. You go do that until you, just, you don't miss them anymore. I think most players, let's say, work hard. They put in the hours. But I think it's down to what they work on yes. is where it's important. Like I know that, let's say the junior level here, I've hit with a lot of juniors over the years. And what let's say, what do you want to work on? And it's like, oh, I want to play points. And that's it. It's never, rarely no come detail. across a kid who wants to say, look, my slice cross isn't working. Let's just work on that for an hour. Give me some low feeds or low balls. It's really hard to come across kids who really know what they need to work on. They just, they're, they're, they don't understand. They don't, and the parents don't understand the process that it's a private coach. It's set play, coach set play, coach match play situation drills with the coach which you're 24-7. It's the same in every other sport. You have a coach. And a team, tennis is a, it's an individual sport. I mean, you can do doubles, but it's still very specific training for the doubles. It's not going out with, you know, 10 kids on the court and, and two coaches. That's not going to work. You have to have the individual coaching and the, and the, and the individual feeding. It I is. mean, there's no group coaching for Roger Federer and Andy Murray at like at 13 years of age. It was Andy Murray, his mom, the other coaches at the back of court and, a, and what we call a stick on the other end or a former player who would just be there to spar while Andy Murray was working on, on maybe on his, he was doing sets of his buggy beforehand, like sets of 50 buggy beforehands on the run sets of 50 block slices to start the point. How important is it for the young kids, these 12, 13, 14 year olds to be hitting with former pros consistently essential. at that age? Essential, essential. I'd say it's the most important thing for myself as a former player. The biggest progress I ever made and, and the best decision I ever made was only to play with adults when I was 13 years of age. I didn't play any juniors for a year. All I did, and these adults would beat me, beat my brains out like, Tommy Miguel, who's where we are now in Bechtel, I want to give Tom, Tom Miguel a big shout out. He's the tennis director here in Bechtel Lawn Tennis Club. And he would beat my brain silly for a year. I didn't beat him till I was 15. 
But what it did for me, it taught me how to compete. And when I came back the next year, I won every single on the 14 tournament in Ireland. I played internationally for Ireland that year from not even being accepted into Fitzwilliam the year before, which is the most prestigious tournament in Irish tennis. I wasn't accepted either. Ah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> we both have that in common, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, no, so I do see the value in that. Yeah. But I kind of see if a kid's like really good, 10, 11, 12, and they're the best, then there's more inclination to that. And maybe the parents and they may get money to do it, but it isn't expensive if you haven't proven you know, you may have the dream, but you haven't proven it results to, all of a sudden I need a full-time coach and then we need to play a ex-pro or ex, you know, whatever level pro, but they can hit these big balls. They're older, they've done the tour, get them on the court as well. It is an expensive sport. It takes money to do. To, I mean, that's what I'm saying. You have to have in your bank account, you, you, you have to have the funding to, to have the coaching because you don't see anybody at the Grand Slams without a coach. Let's just be honest. Sometimes no, they're two and three deep. It's the coaching is the most important part. Before of that, let's say Grand Slams, they're, if it's junior Grand Slams, they're 16, 17, 18, but yeah. 12, 13, 14 year old, that's where they need a coach as well. And that's yeah. where they need that's the money. When they so, need, that's when they need, yeah. So either the, the associations fund you, or you, unfortunately you do, some of the contracts are draconian. So like in some of the countries, they'll, they'll see super talented players with no money and business will come together and they'll say, we'll fund you everything on the tour, you're coaching everything, but we want 80% of your earnings from the time you're 18 till you're 30. That's some of the contracts that some of these players have signed. You've given me a name on that before. Yeah. Are we allowed to talk about the name? Oh, we can give the name, yeah. I would say, uh, I mean, I'll give you two names. I know Tommy House was 30% of his earnings till he was, till he was 30. And I'm Burlock, Carlos Burlock, I think was about 80% of his money had to be paid back until he was 30. It's Crazy. pretty harsh contracts. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't never. Yeah. Maybe it's out written knowledge about Tommy. I didn't know that a Carlos. No, book. no, and that would not. Not too many people would know that. I have but a lot of fighting. Go. I mean, it's it's you can't do it. That's the proof in the pudding. There, you would not have. Been, and Carlos Barlock would not have made it without the coaching. It's a bit of a no. chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Yeah, but these players and what people don't, you know, the the left handed player. Um, what's the direct Sharpovov? I always get names. Sharpovov. Yeah. yeah, he was playing futures at fourteen. Qualities. This is a question I have for you. Junior potential, 12, 13, 14, they're really good, top in their country. Should they go straight to futures or should they? No, straight to the futures. Yeah. Take the coach and go. If you're strong enough to be able to hit the ball and you're strong enough at 14, you go. There's no point in doing the junior slams or the junior ITF. That's great. As far as I'm concerned, you're just wasting money and it's a false sense of illusion. Meanwhile, all the other 14 and 15 and 16 year olds, they're playing the tour with their coaches. They're not bothering with the idea. Yeah, they might play and get their, they'll have enough points from the tour to play in the ITF Grand Slams. They'll go play in those. But even then, like I've watched players who were semi-finalists in junior Wimbledon. I've watched them not get anywhere on the tour. I, I used to watch, they would come out and get cleaned in the qualities by these 24 year olds who've been out there for, for four and five years. Watch them get cleaned. Watch them come off the court crying and not understanding why. And then, yeah. It's a big jump. It's, it's a from, massive jump. From the, I'm the top star here at Junior Wimbledon. Yeah. It's from being a star at Wimbledon or the US Open, being one of the best, all the tensions around you. So the next week or the next year, you're playing a Futures. Now, if you're lucky, you'll get a few wild cards, as some of them do. 
And some may be lucky they can win a few matches, but from what I'm seeing, most don't. And it does take, you do have to graduate. It's like going to university. You can't just graduate. You do have to do your three or four years. There's no way around it. And that's why you, I've been with my players in semifinals of futures. And it's just myself, my player, and the other coach. Just the two coaches and the players in the semifinals and finals. And maybe eight or 10, 15 people watching the final of the futures. It's tough. That's tough. So that's really, and then you've got to recognize when you're, when you're top 100, there is, you know, I mean, the most beautiful thing, I guess, about the tour is, generally speaking, the players really respect one another that are inside the top 100. I mean, when Jeff is top 100, I mean, I'll never forget, like, he shared the story, but I don't know if he mentioned this part of it. It was like when he said, hey, Roger, my name's uh, Jeff Salsenstein. He says, and Roger just said, no coach that week. And, and Roger goes, Jeff, I know exactly who you are yeah and i'd love to hit with you and jeff and this is bantering so i see you're playing the lefty i'm the left he said yeah i'd love to hit with you tomorrow see you t- uh, tomorrow so we go out we practice like the 600 people watching the practice the next day oh, thomas you're handsome zero it's like that's the difference yeah Federer was only a kid Federer, yeah yeah he just won Wimbledon that year yeah so i mean but that's how nice he is i mean stefan edberg would be the same unbelievably nice to like he'd go to Cincinnati and in Cincinnati or in Memphis where the locker room there would be locker people in the locker room helping take care of the players he would always leave, find out what their shoe size shirt size short size and grip size and he'd leave a racket a shirt and a pair of tennis shorts for the guys unbelievable wow. guy those are the stories you don't hear mm. you know it's a lot of stuff that goes behind the scenes but it's details. That's to tell you that's what kind of guy that Stefan that, uh, that, that Edberg is. Um, Kareem Alami from Morocco was playing in Germany. He was driving buses at Boletari's, went back in the tour and, and then became really, really successful. He's in Germany playing some young and up-and-coming German kid who got a wild card, probably into Stuttgart or one of the tournaments in Germany. And the kid is so nervous, the kid can't get up and he, and he loses like, oh no. And Kareem turns to the crowd and there's a lot of people there and he goes and he, and he grabs a microphone and goes hey about hey, hey guys how about we do another set here huh and so he goes out and he plays another two sets with the kid and the people stayed and there was lights out the kid played great tennis it was a real match like it was like it was like four and six that's class that's pretty you that's don't, you know so you that's why that. that's just you don't see much of that now though. no they're too professional no. yeah they're too professional yeah that, you know, those are some of the stories that, that are out there that, that, that make the tour fascinating. You just never know what you're going to find from one week to the next. You just don't know. And Joe, Tom, did you enjoy traveling? Yeah, I love traveling. Yeah. Yeah. But I I'm find that the biggest thing you have to look out for is that you don't want to be doing it week in, week out, which a lot of players will do. Try to tell Julian this. Try to do three or four weeks max and then take two or three or four days off. And then just don't touch the rackets and then go see your coach and then wow. do a training block and go back out again. The key is managing that schedule. That's another thing that people don't look at. So, and, 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 and you need to make sure you take some time off, like one day off a week. We just do not touch those rackets. But a lot of problems with the futures is they'll overplay. They'll have no co- coaching at the futures. And then when they lose, say in the first round, They'll go out and they'll, they'll go out and get, you know, to feel sorry for themselves and they'll go out and party and they won't play the next day. That doesn't happen with my players. We go out, if you lose 7-6 in the third set in the first round of the, of the tournament, 
you go out and you play the same amount of sets again the next day. You do it six days a week because that's the only, that's how else you're going to be ready to play to win the matches on the tour. You've got to do the workload. Yeah, not true. I want So it's really funny. A lot of the players, oh, I'm not, I'm done. It's, I know it's a top level as well. You do hear stories of they lose and they go AWOL. And I played a Futures in Greece, God, about eight years ago now. It was with a load of Irish guys. It was great fun. as in have the team, all the Irish guys back there. But I remember I roomed with an Australian lad and he lost first round qualies. I didn't see him for four days. He disappeared because week two was on the same place. So we were hanging around there. And I was like, Harrison, where have you gone? I didn't hear anything back. And eventually he goes, oh, went to meet a mate in Athens. We were in Heraklon at the time. Went to meet. So he flew to Athens, went on the piss. Was boozing for those or drinking for those. Yeah. don't know what the piss is. Yeah. And yeah, came back and sure lost first round yeah. next week as well. Gifted yeah. player, but just any excuse to... Time management is what they don't understand either. So here's the other thing about now. I mean... If you're on court at Roger Federer, you are never, I've never been late for a tour practice in 20 years on the ATP tour. At the futures level, I'd be getting phone calls from the guys that don't have coaches. Like, and well, we agreed to meet at eight o'clock. At 8.01, the phone rings and they go, oh, I'm too tired. I'm, I can't make it today. Sorry. Well, could you imagine doing that with, with Roger Federer? There's not a chance. Would he ever practice with you again? First no. of all. So I never, so when you run into a lot of that and then, People don't realize also, you only have the court for an hour. So when you've got a coach on one end and a coach on the other end, the players don't pick up balls. That's another thing. So they hit balls continuously, nonstop for 15 minutes or seven and a half, and they change sides. They do another seven or eight minutes. That first 15 minutes, they've hit more balls in that 15 minutes than the kids are going to hit like in, 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 if the kids don't have coaches. They're walking around going getting balls. Do the time management. Do them. See the amount of times that these guys are top 100, they hit way more balls in that hour than do the math. Yeah, anybody who's out there saying it's into mathematics, we should probably do a study yeah. on that and be, it'll be fascinating. That's, Get back to Fabio on that yeah, one. Yeah, let me know. That's why I think it's even important, even at the lower level, have more balls on the court because you don't have to go pick them up. Even if you're just playing sets or drills, have like six, seven, eight, nine, ten balls where it's just constantly going. And it does make a big difference. Because you can, you know, at the lower level, you can hit a few balls in the net quickly. Like, yes. And then you're, you're like, oh, go again. That was just a waste of two minutes. Yes. There. So loads of balls oh, yeah. and you're, keep it going, no matter yeah. what the level is. And they don't have to be new balls. Like no. I've gone to, sorry, Joe, training centers. And some of the balls they have are terrible. And so I, some of them do replenish them every so often, but some wait forever. So it takes you a while before, if you're playing with your own fused tip, oh, sets of balls, it takes yeah. you a while before they that's get great, really bad. I mean, that's one of the unwritten rules. We have a hopper of balls with us wherever we go. We always have 50 or 60 really good balls that are being used in the tournament. So the first thing we do when we go to a tournament for three weeks is we find out what the ball is. We go ahead and we get 100 brand new balls. We have a hopper with us, a slingshot. Oh, it's usually in a cardboard box at the Grand Slams. And you see them just checked out, you put a card down, whatever your ID, you check out 70 or 80 balls and off you go. And then you never see that here. No. And at the futures, that's what I'm saying. That, that's the difference. But you'll see. The in, coach. Yeah. No, they're the little details. details. You'll see in preseason, I've seen preseason pictures all over the world of videos now, especially just from December. And how many coaches had Aussie Open 2020 Dunlop balls? 
all the top guys had them. They're practicing with the ball a month before. I know they have the advantage of Australia because they have this break to do it. The others, yeah. not so much, but they'll still get, once they move on to the next term, they get that ball yeah. and they start working yeah. on it. So they have the, the feel for it. Balls a huge difference. Like, so cheap balls, like I'll never forget, like hitting, doing a practice training session with Robbie and uh, the club had decided to buy these balls, which were not used on the, on the, on the tour and I made a mistake of feeding him. He saw the ball bounce and then the next day he just hit it out of the stadium. He's come on, Joe, what's going on? I said, ah, yeah, that's how, that's how where they are. Now, I think all those little minute details all make a big. Time management, ball, the coaching. I mean, it's, and when you put it together, now you see why these guys make it. I mean, Tim Henman had a private coach at the time. He was 13 till he, for, the, for his whole time in that transition up to the tour. And Stuart Doyle, who you've played against, actually. Practice beat, with. Practice with. Um, he played Henman when they were both 14 and beat Henman two and two. Did he? And then, he, I mean, Stuart blew out his knees, but he, it, was, it also wouldn't have made any difference because we, we have no coaches here in Ireland who spent 20 years on the tour. We don't have access to them. But what about these coaches? You know, you see, I know there's an Irish guy who, Irish Italian guy who plays in Italy, the mother's Irish, they moved, they married an Italian guy, they moved to Italy and he's grown up over there. But they're in a club in the countryside, one coach takes both sons. I think last year, like, there were number one guy was like one or two in Italy under 14, which is a huge achievement. Yep. But I don't know if the coach had any really tour experience, but the kid bought into the coach. That's the part of it. The coach, they buy into the coach. It's a relationship and it has to be fun for the players and the coaches. It's a, not an easy skill to coach. You have to make it fun. They have to be laughing and relaxed on the court. They've got to be having fun with you. Otherwise, one of the biggest things you have to have as a coach, believe it or not, is a personality that's going to make your player laugh. Because if you don't have that, they're not going to, they're not going to travel with you. I have seen you do it now, just recently with the kids out here, where you do play some Star Wars game with them. Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> and like make it fun for them, which that's what they need. That's what they're yeah. into. Yeah. Rather than being all serious and then the kids yeah, hate the game. I mean, we're here and, you know, we, we get inspired here in Beckett on tennis club because we've got, you know, Lencer, Beckett and, and Wesley, all Wesley's rugby teams training out here. So that the kids, when the pitches aren't empty, we'll take, the, we'll take 40 tennis balls and we'll walk around, pretend we're trying to convert, you know, tries through the, through the goalposts with the tennis balls. The, kid loved the kids love the game. It's that creative aspect of it. You know, Robbie would love to shoot for targets. Every Friday, myself and Robbie Gineppi would go out in the court, and I never beat him because obviously he was 13 in the world, but we would play for bottles of wine. He would always show up for that, for that last hour on Friday. That was a way to get Robbie out. Because he's a great chef, great cook, great guy, great player, and he would always show up. That's the only way I would get him out on the Friday because that would, that would, you know, otherwise it's, you know, it's the weekend. He's done it all. He's seen it all. He's, you know, he's getting ready to retire. So you'd have to find some way to motiv- motivate yeah. him to get it out. To get bottle out. of wine and targets sounds yeah. good. Yeah, oh, it's good, yeah. He gets a bottle of wine for his, of his choice, yeah. T- how, on the case, he's got a cellar full of it by I now. Say he has some good wine there. As What are things you see pro players all the years on the tour use to motivate themselves? Oh, they'll definitely, they'll definitely use music. They'll, they'll, definitely, they'll definitely listen to something. They'll definitely do some yoga. A lot of them like to do yoga. A lot of them do a lot of stretching. Like a lot of people, what people don't realize is, and it's active, it's not passive stre- stretching. Like if you're going to go hit with Lopez, I remember myself and Conan Allen went out in the Australian Open and we were practicing with Lopez. 
And the very first ball the coach fed in, Lopez hit the ball at 120 miles an hour. His arm was already match play loose. We'd gone in, we didn't know that what Lopez was like that, so we hadn't warmed up. We'd warmed up the legs, we'd done, we got on the bicycle, everything was done, but the arms. So Connor was hoping to have the short tennis warm up and then move back in the baseline, so was I. No, it was straight back in the baseline. Straight what? in 120 miles an hour. That's so Why you, waste time warming up when you could be warmed up? Yeah. Agassi would do the same thing. Like if you went on the court and practice with Andre, the first ball was coming at you, Mach 90. So I'm practicing with you. You know, it gets a bit heated. What sort of techniques, what would they have used? Apart from would they use uh, money or? Money or numbers. So for example, I'm going to slice the ball to you 30 times down the line and you count how many angled backhand passes you hit. That's the motivation. So you're trying to get to 30. So we'll do two or three sets. And then if you get 30, 30, 30, here's the funny thing about that number. You want to repeat it the next day. So there's no, it's never going to be perfect. As soon as you miss, it's like the number pi. It's to infinity. You start all over again. There's no perfection in tennis. And that's one of the big things mentally you have to teach the players. But if, if, you're, if I'm slicing the ball to you and you're trying to hit a, a cross-court um, backhand passing shot and you're only making eight out of 30, sorry, that's not going to be, that's that number. Is, so that, it has to be quantifiable. Those are the stats within the stats, stats that you don't see from the 13 to the 18-year-olds. And that's there, every point they play is statted. So if they have an unforced forehand there, it was the wrong finish, wrong footwork, wrong part of the court, you're too late, it should have been a buggy, no, you, can only, you should have chipped that. So you, the pattern unfurls in a, in, in a match play situation. So it becomes really important that, you're, that you have measurable goals and the players buy into it and attainable goals. Yeah, but no. everybody is a starting point, including me. We, so if, if you can't hit you know, 30 drop volley, backhand volleys in a row that are from below the net, you've got to get it up and over. And in fact, if it goes too deep, the player is going to run it down. So at the professional level, it's... The margins is like, it's half a foot, is, it, it makes all the difference. Yeah, we the had this fun. We did it last week with the yeah. young kids, which was a bit of fun. Yeah. I was working on the shot. And yeah. you're right, if it's not good enough, anybody can run it down. So it has yeah. to be perfect and yeah. you need to work hard at them. So Joe, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to end this soon. I've taken enough of your time. Any other stories we can end this podcast on that our listeners would enjoy? Oh, I think that you're always trying to find like stories. Storytelling is a huge part of being on the tour. Um, and I have loads and loads of stories to share. But this is one of my favorite ones was on the tour bus. And we were going out and we were in Shanghai and I was with Jeff. Jeff had won his first round match and then he played Philippusos and lost in the second round. We were on the tour bus. It was a big bus. We all, because the hotels are, it's about a 30 minute ride from the hotel to, to the Shanghai site where they used to hold the Master Series. So we would get the, the bus out there and I remember setting, setting down there with Scott Draper, a left-hander from Australia. And we, one of the stories we always share is, what's the worst match points that you've, you know, you've had and you've actually lost a match? And Scott goes, I've got one for you. You're not going to believe this. And I go, what is it? I was in Cincinnati in the first round playing Roger. And I'm playing the best tennis of my life. And I match point up. And I win the match. I hit the ball. Roger's taking the racket out of his hand. And he's walking towards me with his hand held out to say, well played, Scott. Great match. And the umpire overrules the call and made and said, no, the ball was in. And they went back and replayed the point. Roger saved that match point again and actually won the match on one Cincinnati. <laughs> Ouch, that hurts. That hurts. Or 
another one that uh, was really brilliant was Panata was 13. This guy's, if you want to know, look at something really elegant, a little bit of history. Look up Adriano Panata, the Italian player. Legend, yeah. He's a legend. But one of the stories that people don't know about him, he was 13 match points down in the first round in Rome, saved all 13, went on to win Rome, and went on to win, to win the French Open. But another great story. Mike Russell, 15-40 down in the first, two match points down in the first round of qualities in the French Open. His nickname is Iron Mike Russell. I mean, this guy, he's a great top 100. He's in there for at least five years. And I'll always remember him telling me he was 15-40 match, two match points down in the French Open, first round of qualities. Saves him, qualities in, and has covered him has two match points on Guga Kuerten, loses those match points in the fourth round. Guga saves the match points, goes on and wins the French. Those are just some of the stories. I mean, how often does that happen? That a player <laughs> saves match points, <laughs> digs himself out of the grave and Rich, wins the tournament. It's, does it give you a... Uh, there's no better, I think there's no better feeling than that. I mean, James McGee did it twice in in a challenge where he reached a semi-final to save match points in the first round of qualities, won that match. Quality then, and then he had two match points down in the quarterfinals of the challenger. One save those match against? points. Kozlov okay. and Michael okay, Jarzy. Our Jarzy, it's the, the big tall. Yeah, both guys are, yeah, top 100 guys. Yeah, yeah there's something about <laughs> saving match points. There's yeah. something about saving match points. But two early. in one week, I mean, in two in one week, is it's your McGee, week. Like, it's your week. It's Mickey had a great week. It must give you a sense what? of freedom where you oh. just, you know, no matter what happens, I should be out of here. Yeah. But what about that feeling also of having match points where you miss a, you miss a terrible ball or you get a bad call oh, you, and you're like, the oh, job's done. That's just, you know, that's heartbreak. And an hour later, no, that's tears. I mean, if you're in a Grand Slam, that happens. There's a lot of tears in the locker room and those, like, you know, maybe not on the court, but everybody will go into that locker room and find some place. There's a lot of tears when that happens. Yeah, you, did, you did start a story saying, who's the guy that smashed all his rackets? Oh yeah, Fernando Verdasco. Yeah. Yes, sorry. <laughs> you, you started a story with Fernando smashing all his rackets. Yeah. But at the Aussie Open last year, Isner played, I can't remember now. Yeah. Who's the other tall American? Oh, he won today as well. He's, oh, I can't think of his name now. Oh, pe- sorry. Oh, oh Riley Opelka. I know exactly. Sorry. Is it Riley yeah. Opelka? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's been coached by Johnny Zabon. He's one of his coaches who I used to coach. Okay, I'll be cut into that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, Pelka, so, yeah. So I'm, I'm at the Aussie Open last year speaking to your story of Vadasco smashing his rackets and Opelka beats John Isner. And it was one of these seven, six, six, seven, seven, six, seven, six, six, seven matches. And I'm walking through the tunnel. And I see Isner behind me and I'm sort of, he's walking. I'm like, looking back, I just see him take his bag off his shoulder and the guy lets loose on all his rackets. Now, you'll never see that on court. No, you don't know. No, that's what they do, yeah. Loose. Oh, I was, yeah. I was like, yeah. this would be a great video for functional tennis. <laughs> yeah. But John, I just kept walking. I didn't even look yeah, back. Yeah. I was afraid yeah, of getting a yeah, racket yeah. thrown at me. <laughs> oh, you see a lot of that. You'll see like lockers being smashed, like rack- lockers being smashed with rackets just smashing the locker in the locker rooms. But yeah, the players will lose once they get off that stadium court and they've had match points or they've lost a tight match. They keep a great face because they know they're on cameras. But you know, when, they, when they're not on camera, mayhem breaks loose. Mayhem breaks loose. Uh, 
let's leave yeah. the podcast for there. That was really yeah. interesting. Enjoyed it. And thankfully yeah. we got both no. sides in. We got the tips in. Yeah. And we few got stories. a few stories in. So let's see. Hopefully the people like it. And yeah. if they want more, we can give them more. We'll at give some, some more. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for having me on your show, Fabio. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Great. Thank you. What a great episode from Joe. Hope you picked up some tips on what's really needed to become a top player and the hours you have to spend working on all these specialty shots. This is all new to me and I've been around the game a long time and it was just great to hear this. So really hope you picked up something from that. So good. Listen back to Joe. We got so much feedback from the initial episode where people would have never heard of Joe, but they love the storytelling, his stories. Joe is such a great character and I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with one more rerun. Until then, hope you're having a great summer. Bye.